Hi, this is Marjorie Liu from New York Comic Con, and be sure to listen to Adrian Has Issues. Hey everybody, welcome to Adrian Has Issues. I'm Adrian. And I'm Eileen. I'm very glad to welcome back our guest to, was it the third time she's been on the show? Erica Schultz has the honor and privilege of being our very, well, I don't know, it depends on how you look at it. Is it an honor and a privilege? Because it was like the very first episode. (laughs) We'll leave that up to her discretion. Yeah. (laughs) I always have a great time talking with you guys, whether we're at cons or on a podcast. You guys are wonderful and I adore you. Uh Oh. You're and saying I, that because it's true. <laughs> and I learn about Frangelico. Yes. <laughs> that is not Mrs. Butterworth. That's not Mrs. Butterworth. That I spent my entire life, childhood thinking that the Frangelico bottle was Mrs. Butterworth. <laughs> so you were on the very first episode entitled The Bout of Great Booker. <laughs> Who now follows me on Twitter. That, and I think it was also episode 66, which is entitled The Return of Great Booker. On the very first podcast, we had had this discussion of Erica Schultz, former classmate, which she's very fond of. And I guess after that show had sought out Erica, or was it vice versa? Um, she actually, I guess she came along her own name, uh, Googling. <laughs> That's one way to find it. And saw it and, and listened to it and then found me on Twitter. And everything, and we follow each other on Twitter now. She's, I mean, she's great. She's got a great sense of humor. She always did, but she's great because some people, I think, would have been like, "I'm sorry, you said what about me?" It's like, no, you were the, you were my hero in middle school. <laughs> You're the only one who had the guts to ask the question of Coach Murphy. So <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, definitely listened to that episode, and then um, we were back on episode sixty six. Let's see. I mean, gosh, you've done so much awesome stuff. You're a writer, letterer. Editor, publisher, and animator. And uh, some of your past works include M3, Swords of Sorrow, Masquerade and Kato, Charmed. Today we're going to be talking about two books which are being released on the same day, which is kind of awesome. Oh. Well, the first is 12 Devils Dancing from Action Lab Danger Zone, which is a publisher that's also brought us Spencer and Locke. And uh, for those of you who listened to episode 101, uh, we spoke to David Propose uh, from that book. And let's see. Total Devil's Dancing is also drawn by Dave Acosta, and is colored by Andrew Kovalt, who's done work with Courage the Cowardly Dog, and Cardinal Ray, whose work can be seen on the Image Comics Bingo Love, which is a fantastic book by T. Franklin, and also Crowded, which was um, written by Eisner nominee Christopher Sabella, who was actually another past guest on episode 121. And we're also going to be talking about Xena, number six, which will be the start of your arc on from Dynamite Comics, which features art by Vincente Cifuentes, and I hope I pronounced his name correctly. I think it's, I honestly, I think it's Vicente Cifuentes. Yes, but, see, she got it. All right. But yes. every time I, every time I, I with an Italian accent, so. <laughs> hey, it still works. They're, they're similar, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but Erica, welcome back. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. And again, like, I love chatting with you guys. So I'm I'm here. I'm I'm open to any questions. We've talked <laughs> oh, about everything. No, don't say that. <laughs> oh, please, you've talked about everything. Right? <laughs> that's where the that's where the ballad of Great Booker came from. And that's where that blank space we did in the beginning is yeah. gonna come in handy. <laughs> <laughs> 
that's that's where all that dead air comes into play. <laughs> we had discussions before at cons, mm-hmm. but never was quite sure if that would have worked because I had a great time, you know, talking about Great Booker and all this other stuff that wasn't even related to the book. But see, we brought people together. We absolutely brought people together. I haven't seen Grey Booker since 1990. Oh, wow. Whenever I graduated eighth grade, it was in either 90 or 91. And that's that was the last time I saw Grey Booker. We went to different high schools. So there you go. So you brought us together. And again, I'm reminded I'm always the oldest one in the room. <laughs> Not the years, it's the mileage. I digressed on that subject. <laughs> it's not the years, it's the smiles. Okay. Well, in that case, yes. then, being with this one, I'm, I'm good on that. <laughs> yes. And if anybody has never hung out with these two lovely people at a convention, they are wonderful, and they are a wonderful couple to just... And they, they bounce off each other, and you can just tell how much they truly care about each other because they make each other laugh constantly. And they make you laugh, too. Oh. <laughs> Until we start yelling about the liqueur that I stole. <laughs> Until you start yelling about Frangelico and, and Grand Marnier and God knows what else. And Vicente Cifuentes. Vicente Cifuentes. <laughs> there you go. Oh, gosh. So, yeah. 12 Devils Dancing, Action yes. Lab Danger Zone. This book kind of messed me up in a really awesome way. <laughs> Because it's something I've always appreciated about your work is the range of the titles that you've done. You know, like from when I first met you, I had read M3, which was like a great crime drama. There was also Revenge. But then I've also read stuff like, you know, Cheese and um, Winston Churchill, which are these really funny, but just very left of center books. But then, you know, you get to this one. It's like, oh, this is interesting. But then I also didn't realize, man, Erica, you get dark. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it is very dark. It's, you know what, I've always found interesting this idea when you listen to podcasts about like serial killers or stuff, or you watch TV, and it's like criminal minds, they always talk about like, you know, the triad of serial killers. And so they were abused as children, and they, you know, they uh, hate animals and, you know, all this other stuff. And I think to myself, you know, I've known several people who, you know, grew up in abusive households that did not turn out to be serial killers as far as I know. So I wanted to explore that. And I think with every villain that I write, I try and make something, I try and give them a reason for being the evil person that they are. You know, like with Charmed, with Dijal, when you see in book four, you see that he was severely abused by the artists that he was working for. I mean, he was taking his work, he was passing it off as his own. And Dijal was really just, he was basically, you know, just at this guy's beck and call, because he was in a lower class at the time. So I try and give every character a really good backstory and a really relatable you know, like, man, if that happened to me, I would be really pissed too. I might not turn into a serial killer, but I'd be really angry. Right. So I tried to I tried to give that to the killer in this book, and I don't want to give any spoilers out, but I try to give that to the killer because you see that he wasn't just a bad seed. He wasn't just a bad kid. He was, you know, it was he was a bad kid, but he was also created. Right. It's kind of interesting to explore the where's the line. Yeah. You know, when somebody kind of crosses over into just being damaged to being the one that damages. And if you look at the characters, the the two young boys, they both have the same upbringing. 
they both grew up in the same environment. The difference is that one grows up with parental figures that are very caring and very loving. The other grows up with parental figures that have sort of bought into this this environment. I mean, I don't know how much the readers might know, but the main two characters, the antagonist and protagonist, actually grow up in a cult together as children. And it's very interesting to see they're they're in the same household, for lack of a better term, and one goes in one direction and one goes in the other. And I thought that angle was really interesting, having them grown up in the cult, because with a lot of those stories, it's very much, you know, the slice of Americana, two-story house, you know, two-car garage kind of thing, you know, these very, almost from the outside, you know, very normal-looking households and neighborhoods. And then when they find out that, and I mean, I'm sure you can attest to this from like half the Forensic Files episodes yeah. you watch. You know, it's like these very like humble, oh, nothing bad ever happens here. Then you turn out, oh, this guy is responsible for like grisly murders left and right. And you're like, oh my gosh, well, everything looks so normal. But having to take that then to put it in a setting where it's like, okay, these two individuals grew up in a cult. What was sort of the inspiration behind that angle of the story? I grew up in, you know, you and I talked about going to Catholic school and stuff. Mm-hmm. And Obviously, I'm not going to say that Catholicism is a cult. I'm not saying that at all. But I think that anything that people become zealots about can become cultish. Like you look at, you know, Jim Jones or David Koresh or any of these people that are considered cult leaders, they all started out believing in God, you know, and then it became not just believing in God, but believing that they were God. So I find it interesting that there's a very thin, like you guys were talking about, like, where's the line? Where's the line between believing in something greater than yourself and believing that you are that thing greater than everyone else? And I thought that that was a very interesting thing to sort of explore. I I listen to a lot of, you know, podcasts about cults and stuff like that. And I know that a lot of these villains, these cult leaders, don't see themselves as the villain. They see themselves as the savior of their flock. And that's kind of where this goes, this idea of, I'm not beating these children, I'm not treating these people horribly, I'm saving their souls. Like, that makes me the good guy here. Right. I mean, life is very complicated, and people are very complicated, and I wanted to show that it wasn't just very cut and dry with these characters. I wanted everybody to have a kind of a gray area, the good guys and the bad guys. Have you by any chance seen Infinity War? Yeah, I did. Okay, good. So I don't want to say anything and spoil. But it was interesting you thought about someone who sees himself as a savior. I was immediately thinking of Thanos, mm-hmm. how he sees himself as a benevolent leader who, while slaughtering half of, you know, a population, you know, has taken someone like Gamora and it's like, oh, look at me show mercy. It's like, I'm taking this child. I'm helping her. I'm doing these things. And while murdering and torturing You know, they're like, oh, you should be glad that this came at the hand of Thanos. You should be thankful that it happened this way. And it's such a twisted thought process Mm -hmm. because in his own mind, and that's, and I know people were saying, well, they're making the character sympathetic. And I'm like, no, what you're really seeing is his twisted point of view that this weird idea of just love and compassion and wanting to make the world better. But I'm like, you didn't realize this is actually really fucked up, right? (laughs) The original Star Wars movies are all about a point of view. That's what Obi-Wan always says to Luke from a certain point of view, you know. So nobody thinks that they're the villain ever. No one says, I'm the bad guy. It's always, I'm doing this for the benefit of others, whether it's 
a group like a cult or your family or whatever. You know, I'm doing this to save your soul, to save your life, to save whatever. And it always turns out to be this really twisted thing. It's it's almost like, you know, funhouse mirrors. It's almost like they're looking at the world through glasses that sort of portray a funhouse mirror. Sure. You know, everything's distorted. And in that distortion, this is how they make sense of it. That's a good point. Like, I always have had these discussions with Adrian before where really so many viewpoints in life is really about perception and mm-hmm. perspective. And look at all these religious wars, and they both believe God's on their side. Well, mm-hmm. then which is it? You know, he can't be yeah. in both. And look at the Crusades. Yeah, you know, and all the people that were, oh, we conquered you to make you civilized and save your souls. And they were like, no, nah, we were fine before you got here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we were thriving. <laughs> you know, but we somehow... We totally okay before y'all showed up. <laughs> yeah, you know, so it's like that thing. And, you know, and just like with the Thanos thing, like, oh, like you wiped up half the people. Yeah, but look how the culture's thriving now. You know, like, what? <laughs> you know, does not justify genocide. <laughs> They talk about culling herds and things like that. Like, um, I know that sometimes when the deer population gets out of hand, they say, oh, well, they can have the deer hunt or whatever. And it, quote, helps the population. I mean, maybe I'm reading into it wrong, but I think that was kind of Thanos's his no, sort of... No, that makes sense. But I guess, yeah. you know, what the horror of it is that applied to humans or applied yeah. to sentient beings um, exactly. is different than, hey, maybe we should, you know, thin out the sheep a little bit, you know, not yep. realizing, hey, uh, we're the sheep now. <laughs> yeah. So it's, you know, but it does kind of, you know, and then you just end up exploring your mortality and all of that. But the idea behind the comic, as far as going from a cult standpoint, most people automatically have a negative connotation mm-hmm. to those things. And then kind of seeing that different people can come out of that experience and come out in very different sides of that coin. One of the things, I mean, it's in a later book. The main character, Callum, is raised by his aunt and his uncle. And his aunt is white and his uncle is black. And this is in the late 70s, early 80s. His uncle's just returned from Vietnam. So not only does he have the stigma of being from Vietnam, but he's also dealing with the racism of you know, the United States, I mean, it's still here, but the racism of the United States during that time period as well, and the stigma of being a soldier coming back from Vietnam. And a place he actually says to his wife, Lucy, you know, where else would we go? These people took me in. So the cult, even though they despise what's happening, it's still this shelter for them. Because you know, it is a very multiracial cult. Everyone is pretty much equal because everyone is useful to the grand plan, for lack of a better term. And that's something that sort of, that the cult leader sort of basically finds a way to sort of keep people there. Oh, but out there, you know how they're going to treat you because you're black or you're Latino or, you know, or, or you're not white. They're going to treat you differently because of that, because out there, but in here, we're all fine. That's like a psychological mind screw that a lot of these cult leaders sort of use of, you know, nobody understands you, but we do. Yeah. Yeah. You end up choosing basically the lesser evil. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Not realizing lesser or not still evil. (laughs) Yeah. We've seen that sort of mentality, like that sort of fanaticism, even in terms of fandoms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Which, you know, I don't Um, necessarily know, you know, how far I want to go into all that, but 
it's an interesting dynamic of that group mentality where it's like finding a group of people that are like-minded and who are supportive is a wonderful thing. And I mean, that's, you know, as someone who predominantly, you know, talks to creators and, you know, seeing people on a daily basis on social networking or even in their own lives, you know, it's wonderful to see that thrive. But then what happens when that turns the other way? So basically you're going from inclusion to seclusion. Yeah. Yeah. Like we were talking about, it's a it's a point of view. Everybody has their own sort of way of coming at comics about what they perceive as, you know, the good old days of comics or whatever. To be honest, if you look at older comics, every comic from the quote good old days pretty much had some type of not necessarily political, but social messaging. And I think that at the time that people were reading these comics, at their age, they didn't really understand the social messaging. It went over their heads. You know, so what they're saying basically is instead of I want comics to be the way they were, it's I want to be 12 again, where I don't understand the social meaning behind a lot of the comics because it just goes over my head. That's what they're really saying. And something that people didn't realize was that yeah iron man was a white dude when he first started out but he was also an alcoholic and he dealt with alcoholism he dealt with other issues comics dealt with heroin mm-hmm. uh, green lantern green arrow i believe it was number 76 dealt with heroin that's issues. right that's the one where speedy died of an overdose correct yeah the whole purpose of the green lantern green arrow stories the opening story in that arc is Green Arrow showing up because um, a landlord is being a slumlord. You know, so it's like, you think, and this is, I think, 1973, I believe. Um, I can actually go to my shelf and find it if you want. Um, (laughs) But this idea of comics not touching on social issues, it doesn't exist. Comics have always touched on social issues. It's just, if you're of an age where that goes over your head, then you're not going to see it. And it's like, I I look at like a lot of cartoons and the cartoons that are for kids, but they also have little nods to parents. And a lot of it goes over the kids' heads, but the parents really know what's going on. So does that mean that it doesn't exist? Like if, you know, if a tree falls in the woods and nobody hears it, does it make a sound kind of thing? So if you read a comic and it goes over your head, the social aspect that they're talking about, does that mean that it wasn't there? No, it it means that it was there. You just didn't pick it up. You know, I mean, Moon Knight from the beginning talked about mental health issues. Oh my God. Yeah. And there's a whole run of Moon Knight where, you know, halfway through the arc, you don't know that. Captain America, Wolverine, and Spider-Man are in his head. Mm-hmm. That was the Bendis run. I remember that very clearly. Yeah, it was Bendis and Malieve. But, you know, Moon Knight's always dealt with mental health issues. Iron Man was always dealing with alcoholism. Daredevil dealt with AIDS and uh, addiction when Karen Page ended up dying of AIDS. Right. Remember that? You know, and she ended up uh, uh, giving away Daredevil's secret, his secret identity, because... Uh, I. Was she, was she addicted to heroin or was she addicted to crack? I don't remember because at the time I didn't read a lot of that Daredevil. Like, I'm kind of going back to it now, but that one I don't remember as much. She dealt with addiction. Daredevil dealt with addiction. These are social issues that people just don't really see as social issues or they just ignored. 
I mean, if you really look at it, uh, comics, you know, not you see this with the cartoons as well. When you kind of look back and you realize, oh, that's not really PC right now, but but, mm-hmm. but they really, whether it's cartoons or the comics, they really are a product of their times. They really yeah. do reflect the culture and the environment, you know, and the atmosphere of that time. A lot of things were used for political propaganda, and were very much stood in that. And realizing things like, you know, eat at Joe's was a code. Mm-hmm. I never knew that until like recently that that meant something. And I'm thinking, oh, it's just eat at Joe's, haha, you know, whatever. You know, I figured every diner, that was every diner's market line. No, that was a code name or a code yeah. for something. I forgot what it was for. No, there were, and there was actually quite a few of them, you know, yeah. especially during like the World War II era. Um, there were just flat out like these blatant references that almost came out of left field that, you know, to this day, some of them, I'm sure if I went and Googled them, I could be able to find mm-hmm. out. But as a kid, I just thought it was like, okay, you know, they're just being silly. But then I'm like, wow, I mean, with the benefit of hindsight, like that, it was so blatant. Mm-hmm. But also those cartoons also spoke to um, a different generation. Yeah. Right. And that's the other thing too, is the people that are having this nostalgia, you're remembering certain things, but if you were to go back and rewatch those things that we had this big nostalgia about, you realize, whoa, either this wasn't as good as I thought it was, or this had a lot more going on than I realized, mm-hmm. you know, and that always happens. So then, of course, when something new comes along and it's something that's more about the times now, there's always going to be that pushback. There's always going to be that, I don't get it. I don't understand it. And it's like, well, it's not for you. That's <laughs> not for everybody. I look at comics as a medium. I don't look at it as superheroes. I don't look at it as horror. I don't look at it as one thing or the other. I look at it as literally a vehicle for telling a story. I think that the story that you tell in a comic should be the same story that you can tell in a novel, in a film, in a television show, in an animation, whatever. It's just a story. I think that because superhero comics. I'm not going to say they're the most popular, but they might be the most popular, or at least they're the most promoted, especially with films and television series and things like that. People just think about, you know, the spandex and the this and the that and the next thing, and they're not really thinking about what the superheroes are fighting for. It's not always truth, justice in the American way. And what does truth, justice in the American way even mean anymore? They're just as valid and just as involved as any piece of literature. Mm-hmm. You know, there is a story there. There's a plot, protagonist, antagonist. There's a lesson or there's a point, whatever it is. It just happens to have pictures. And everybody yeah. fixates on the pictures or fixates on superheroes, not realizing that these are as much stories as any any novel that you will ever read. You know, and I, there's two points to that. One, I know actual novelists that have had their actual novels converted into graphic novels, into comic book form. And they're amazing. And it's like, wow. And, you know, and it kind of goes from the, what you pictured in your head, and now you're kind of seeing this in front of you. It did not take away from the story at all. Of course, you got to write it a little differently, just like converting yeah. a book to a movie. But it's the same thing. It's the same story. And it still has that punch, that poignancy that it always had. We went to special edition. There was uh, a couple of gentlemen there that they were ex-military and they were basically writing comic books about the different missions 
that they went on in the military. And a lot of it isn't going around, you know, Navy SEALs and sneaking into places and blowing shit up, but it's having that planning, that recon, the, the politics of, of that, all those different things that kind of go into that. And then finding that, okay, this is a very niche comic. It's not for everybody, but a lot of military were very much drawn to those comics. And as a matter of fact, there's these patches that the soldiers can wear, like recreational patches. I'm not sure of the exact term for it, but they used to have kind of like, they could put their own, they could kind of, um, put, customize, customize. Yeah. They're, so long as it may, it was within a certain, that like, gotta be a certain size and, you know, material and whatnot. And they would actually make these special patches from the comic and the soldiers would wear them on their uniforms. Nobody would ever think. There's a comic about that, about the military, or there's a comic about, you know, that's not superheroes. That's about, you know, Joe Schmo, the shoe salesman, or, you know, Bubba the werewolf. Yes, that is actually a comic. I shit you not. But hey, there's something for everybody, just like in regular literature. And comics, I think, are very underrated and very misunderstood. And that's why I love about your comic that bringing in, okay, especially the horror comics and kind of seeing just that vivid imagery, hearing these stories and the amount of detail. And for those of us who are like the forensic files addicts, which I admit I am one of them and I finished every single episode on Netflix and I'm heartbroken that it's over. So we need more people to go kill their wives so I can have more shit to watch. <laughs> but <laughs> and, and note to self, never get life insurance that you didn't buy yourself. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Um, That's what H.H. Holmes was all about, buying life insurance on other people. Yeah, exactly. So that's the thing. It's just saying, I know if I find out there's a life insurance policy on me, I I know to run. So I wanted to ask about Dave. Fortunately, um, Dave Acosta couldn't be here with us today. But we wanted to talk about his art and really, you know, what was the process for you guys kind of getting together and deciding on the style that you went with, which was the artwork is amazing, by the way. It really tells the story very well. So, but we might kind of get your take on what he would say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was very lucky that when I worked on Swords of Sorrow, I lettered the entire crossover series. So, I was very lucky that I got to see everybody else's work. And Dave was working with Nancy Collins on the Jennifer Blood Vampirella. Mm. And he he did horror really well. And he has done a lot of horror books in the past. I wanted an artist who would be comfortable doing horror because it is a graphic book. I also wanted an artist who had a realistic style. The whole idea is that we're presenting this not cartoonishly. We're presenting this as if it would happen in the real world. And I approached Dave about doing the book and he looked over at some of the scripts and he said, yeah, let's, let's do this. And I, I'm so amazed by what he brings to it. He really, I mean, he, we, we had done a podcast a few weeks ago and the podcaster noticed that all of his borders are really clean. And a lot of horror books have like black borders and are very sort of dingy and dark, but he doesn't do that. Everything's very clean and very white and very, you know, white borders and, or, you know, Andrew will sometimes, the colorist will sometimes put in like a nice gradient or something like that. But it, it doesn't look like a horror book, except when you actually look at the panel. You know, you don't like close the book and you just see all black pages. It has this very 
not light or airy, but it has this very realistic look to it. And a lot of that is Dave's line work. And a lot of that is Andrew's colors. I was very lucky to work with Andrew when I was working on the Astonishing X-Men motion comic. He was one of the colorists with me when we were working on that with Continuity Studios. And I was blown away by his work. He was amazing. And I brought him into this and I said, you know, this is going to be a horror book. There's going to be actual body horror. Please tell me if there's anything that I write that that's a line that you don't want to cross. And I said the same thing to Dave. And they both sort of said the same thing to me of, you know, we're pretty comfortable with everything, but don't go out of your way to try to gross us out. <laughs> and it's, it's interesting that, you know, there's something very intellectual about writing something that's a horror scene and then seeing it. My brain just says, oh my God, you asked this person to put that on paper. <laughs> like, what is wrong with you, Erica? But Dave really is terrific to work with, very easygoing, really invested in the story, really likes the characters. He's great at acting. He does these really wonderful facial expressions. And that's where I think comics are so great with nuance. Uh, Mitch Gerard the other day had put something about how, you know, he put these two images side by side and they looked almost identical. But he said, you know, one of them has the corner of the mouth comes up a millimeter and that conveys a different emotional response. Dave is really great at showing the acting of it. You know, we have the character Aisha who's incredibly sarcastic and I mean, she's brilliant, but she's also smarter than anybody else and she knows it. And she always has these great facial expressions of like, okay, listen, let me, I, now I'm going to explain to you how the world works and Dave really captures that. And then, you know, Andrew just puts this wonderful, like he just puts such a, it's, it's hard to explain. I mean, you've seen the book. It looks fantastic. It reads okay, but it looks great. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, that's Andrew what I love about, I mean, I've, I've read a lot of horror, thriller kind of magazines, and you're right, a lot of them are very dark. Yeah. And it kind of, kind of hits you over the head with the gore or the darkness or the creepy or whatever. And what I liked about this one is that everything kind of pops, but it's not in an over-exaggerated way. Like, all right, she's going to throw her eyebrow up, but that's, it's not hitting her hairline. You know, <laughs> like, she, you know, <laughs> the body language is natural. The horror just kind of creeps up on you. And then it's just kind of like, oh, shit, like, that happened. It's the Jaws effect. Yeah, it's just kind of like, it's just it's just enough to kind of like, you know, and it really is kind of like the old, those old school horror where, you know, less is more. And really mm -hmm. lets the imagination kind of fill in the blanks. And because you said, like you said, it's not dark and it's not like fuzzy, it stays with you. You know, so yeah. like there's this one panel where you're seeing the artist's palette with the different mm -hmm. blood on it. And it's just kind of like, and then realizing what they are and just kind of like, oh, okay. Like you had to take a second. It didn't just kind of punch you in the face, but it wasn't so dark that you're trying to figure out what the hell am I looking at? It was just kind of like, oh. I love that kind of flow into the realism and kind of in and out of the kind of mundane scene and then the horror scene. And he really did a great job with that and the coloring as well. Dave actually said that most colorists that he's worked with, he doesn't feel like the colorist has made his artwork look better. He always feels like the colorist makes his artwork accentuate any mistakes he made. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> but this is the first time that Dave's worked with Andrew. And he said, he's like, you know, this guy is just 
phenomenal. And I mean, I was very lucky to have worked with Andrew in the past and to know how talented he was. And I said, yeah, he's, he really is. I mean, when we were working on Astonishing X-Men together, one of the challenges that we had had was we were adapting a book that had been done five, 10 years earlier. And we wanted to make sure that the color looked seamless throughout, even in the images that we were creating from scratch. And Laura Martin was the colorist on that. I mean, like she's just top, top, top. And the fact that Andrew was able to sort of mimic and make things look seamless when we were working on that was just like, you know, he was just so phenomenal. So when I, I had that, I basically want to use Andrew for every color, <laughs> every book that I do from here on out, because he's just so amazing. And he has a background in animation and a background in coloring. And, you know, he worked on the cartoons for uh, Saturday Night Live. And he's done like tons of stuff. And as you said in the intro, he worked uh, Courage the Cowardly Dog. So he really understands color. And I think what I've learned over the years working with different colorists is that the number one thing that a colorist needs to do is understand light. And there's a scene in the third book where it's sun is coming up outside and you're in a dark hotel room and a character breaks down a door. And if you notice the light comes in from that doorway and it's just this beam of sunlight coming in and how he colored it where it just dissipates throughout the room. He knows light. And I think that's the number one thing that a colorist needs to do is know light. Where's the light source in this room and how is that going to affect how everything's lit, how everything's colored? So Andrew really, he's like... The attention to Wah. detail is, is amazing. Yes. And for the record, Courage a Cowardly Dog, oh my god, I hated that show. It creeped me out so badly. <laughs> I know everybody loved it, but I think just, I just creeped me so bad. It was, I mean, that dog was really weird looking. It, it, but it wasn't even the dog. He was the least whatever. But like, and then all the bad guys were just like, and, and the voices. And it was just, it really was like, how can kids watch this and not wake up screaming every night? Like, that's what. How could kids watch? Do you remember uh, uh, Scary Monsters? No. Oh, the Nickelodeon, Curious? yeah. Oh, okay. uh, Real Monsters, yeah. Oh, okay. Real Monsters, thank you. That weird looking show. <laughs> yeah, that was always my jam, though. <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> Your car freaked me out, though. It was just, and then it was all bright, too, and it was just like, it's creepy and it's bright. I don't want to see this. <laughs> well, I think that was the whole thing, was I think the brightness was a way to sort of try and offset the creepiness, but in a sense, it sort of made it even more uncomfortable. Yeah, because it was just very, like, oh, I don't know. And I'm like, oh, my God, how are these kids watching this and not, like, totally freaking out like and and those images have stood with me <laughs> still the guy the guy with the teeth and the voice and it's just it's always the same guy though but yeah he did an amazing job with that by the way <laughs> like he, he did his job <laughs> he certainly did his job exactly uh, something that i've always appreciated about you erica is we talked a little bit earlier about the range of stories that you told and even and let's say because I know you've done work that has been adapted, whether it be Revenge or Charmed. Mm -hmm. And well, recently, what I want to get into a little bit is Xena. How even then, within like known properties, having still been telling like a very human story in those uh, books, which, you know, I don't know if you want to get into a little bit of um, your experiences with the new book, because uh, your run starts issue number six, correct? Yes. Basically, Xena's an, an interesting character to work with because... 
the television series, there were some times when it was sort of very serious and then other times where it was very comedic. Sometimes it was very fantastical with magic and all this other stuff. And then other times it was very sort of rooted in reality and not historical per se, but, but, but very rooted in reality. I kind of decided to go dark, but also have that fun. Not going as dark as when, you know, Xena had to kill Gabriel's daughter. Like, we didn't go that dark. But um, I don't know if you watched the show. It had been a very long time. Um, I had actually started rewatching it, I would say, maybe about a year and a half ago. And my God, it's... I mean, it was very much a product of its time, but that was one of those shows that I didn't realize what it had done for me until way after the fact. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. I don't think I watched it to its conclusion. I did watch it for a long time, though. But yeah, that was some... <laughs> yeah. And to a point where I know Hercules was kind of like the draw where it's like, okay, you know, you stick around and watch it for, you know, 40 minutes or whatever for an hour, and then it'll lead into this. But it came to the point where... You know, no disrespect to Kevin Sorbo or anybody else, but at that point, I made more of a point to watch Xena because I feel like, for me, it was such a more involved show. Yeah, they had more mm-hmm. drama. They had just a better stories. Like, Her- you know, Hercules was kind of more fun and monsters and, you know, which was fine. But I felt like Xena really had touched on those deeper, those deeper, darker subjects, which really, to me, seemed like... It was a much better writing. <laughs> yeah, and seeing you know someone like Lucy Lawless kick maximum ass, but even whether she was being the badass or being vulnerable, like that's something that you don't really think about just how revolutionary that was at the time, and even now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you know, there's always this thing of like, oh, for a woman to be strong, she basically has to be like a man, right? And that's completely false. And I think that you know, lately in the past several years writers, artists, creative people have been trying to show in whatever medium it is that it doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to basically take a male character and make that character female simply to make that character strong. I think characters tend to be very Mm one-dimensional. And I think Hercules was very one-dimensional, whereas I think Xena was very multidimensional, we had, you know, I never really watched the show when it was on. I watched the show for research for writing it, but I, I didn't watch really a show when I was on. So I noticed that, you know, Xena had the whole redemption storyline going on. She also had her relationships not only with Gabrielle, but with other characters, her relationship with Ares, her relationship with Hercules. They really showed that she was a complex person and it wasn't just, you know, me, Zena kick butt. It was, <laughs> you know, she was very complex. She had nuance. And I think that that lacks in some of the other characters. I think because Hercules was a mythical character that existed prior to the television show, they sort of fell into that one dimensional, you know, this is Hercules demigod. This is what he does. You know, whereas Xena, because they were sort of starting from scratch, they were able to sort of give her a little more meat. Although I do think that Hercules still could have had more emotional stuff going on. Oh, but yeah. 
Yeah, and especially when they, they crossed over, it was a nice dynamic they had. Yeah. And that's something that I've always seen. Like, I've always had my issues, say, like, with Wonder Woman. Because they, either she's the butch Amazon or mm-hmm. she's the bimbo in distress. And yeah. it's just kind of like, no, you can be feminine and sexy and all of that and still be a strong, assertive woman. And that was the thing that was really cool about Xena was you still got to see that vulnerability. You still got to see her be emotional. And the fact that she was so strong and had to be kind of almost manly was really just in response to the culture that she was traveling in. Yeah. You know, and then having to, you know, be with Gabrielle and Gabrielle kind of helping her almost kind of connect back to that feminine side and remember that part of her that she kind of had to push down in order to survive. Mm-hmm. So that dynamic was very sweet. I don't always want to be known as the person who writes strong female characters, because as much as I like writing strong female characters, I think one of the reasons why... I wrote a male protagonist, even though he has a very strong secondary character with Aisha to show people that I can write male protagonists as well. And you chuckled when I mentioned Aisha because I know she's like the smart ass of all smart asses. And I love her character because the things that she says are things that always go on through my head, (laughs) like snarky comments and, you you know, know. And, and, you know, I was going through the the final pages for book five today and I was reading and it's I know this sounds so egocentric to actually laugh at something you wrote yourself, but there's a back and forth between her and Callum. And it's just funny because she's got this like gorgeous smile on her face. Dave drew her with this beautiful smile on her face and basically the words coming out of her mouth are I'm going to freaking kill you. You know, with this wonderful, lovely, beautiful smile and big, bright eyes. But I I really wanted to show the dynamic between the two of them and show that I could write a male character and write him as a multidimensional character as well. And it feels like a skipping record. And to those who are already aware, you know, you're kind of thinking to yourself, well, no shit. But yet we kind of have to hammer the point home that one of the things about representation that's so important is that even just to be able to be able to have that voice to speak for a particular character, but also just to have the ability to speak for any character, which, mm-hmm. you know, I was thinking about, well, I've been, I've been thinking about it almost every day when, uh, Tanasi Coates was writing Black Panther. And, you know, mm-hmm. that was, as someone who hadn't had, let's say, an extensive career in comics, and having that perspective, you know, someone who's written essays and columns and, you know, several books, but then at the announcement of him writing Captain America, I just thought, it's like, well, that's kind of fantastic, because to then have that perspective, to then be able to write for someone like Steve Rogers, so even, let's say, with you, you know, yes, you have written Zini, but to, you know, what the characters in 12 Devils Dancing... To just even have that authority and, of course, the talent and just the, the work ethic to write any character, no matter who they are, I think is also just very important because it's hard because, yes, you want to be seen, but, you know, that's the, also the other end of, well, we don't want to necessarily just be known for writing this particular thing. But just to even yeah. have the freedom and flexibility to say, I want to write this character, but I also am not only confident, but knowledgeable enough to write. Because that's something that happens where sometimes, you know, you may read a book where you can tell that maybe while the person may have had good intentions, maybe they may not have had as much knowledge as they possibly could have. Yeah. Or they leaned on a certain aspect too much. Like, okay, yes, it's 
you know, it's the, oh, it's a black character or a Hispanic character or a fat character or a queer character and have it be, instead of it just being that they're just that aspect of themselves, that they're just a character that just happens to be black, Hispanic, fat, queer, whatever it is. And really, yeah. at the end of the day, these characters are people and they're not just this one aspect of them. Well, I mean, I think I, I know what you're talking about. The fact that Callum happens to be a gay character. Yes, I didn't, wasn't sure if that was spoiler. No. Oh, definitely. I'll <laughs> no, be- no, I was having a conversation. It wasn't you, Adrian. I forget who, who I was having a conversation with, but it was with another blogger and, and podcaster about how every time you see a male and a female in a television series or whatever, like they always have to get together or they always have to have some weird sexual tension Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And I sort of nip that in the bud with Callum and Aisha, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a, there's a conversation between the two of them and she makes a comment like, you know, Oh, I'm sure you're, you're going to try and, you know, ask me for my number. And he says, you're really great, but you're really not my type. And it just sort of immediately nips it in the bud that you know that this relationship has nothing to do with sex. It has nothing to do with anything like that. And anything that goes on from that moment forward is a relationship built on two intelligent people trusting each other. Right. And that's what it is. Like I I was watching Supergirl the other day and I was just sort of rolling my eyes at Yes. <laughs> now I don't know. Or I'm. I'm actually. It's funny because the sad part is that line could be tied to any season. Because I had yeah. kind of been watching on and off before we kind of got really dedicated to the CW show season one, and my eyes rolled several times. But the thing is, and I love Kara and the actress that plays her. But you know, some of the I, I hate kind of talking shit about people, but some of the writing, my god. So I don't know which season in particular you're referring to, but again, that's sad that it can be applied to a lot of instances on that show. Just, I mean, and it's not even just Supergirl. It's it's any of these shows that, you know, make it appear that a male and a female or two gay people or whatever, you cannot be platonic friends. It makes it seem absolutely impossible for there to be a platonic friendship. And I'm like... So basically, you're telling me my entire life is a lie because 85% of my friends are male. Yes, 50% of those male friends are gay, but (laughs) the other 50% are not. And I haven't had relationships with them. Right. And it's just very frustrating because I think it just drops everything down to the basis level and just says, you know, human beings were just these like sexual beasts. And it's like, no, we're obviously a lot more than that. So I just think it just sort of drops us down to like the lowest level and like lowest common denominator. And I and I like seeing characters that can be friends and not have that weirdness. Like I think on Flash, you've got Cisco and Caitlin, and I don't think they ever had anything or I could be wrong because I only really started watching it like season two. But I know there was a weird thing between Caitlin and Barry at one point. Yeah, they kind of danced around that a lot. And also, I don't know how much of that, and because I don't want to necessarily speak for any of the writers, but I also know that, at least from my perspective, I should say, traditionally, that's one of those things for a lot of serial dramas, you know, especially as someone who grew up watching soap operas, that's such a classic trope to sort of fall into, because that's something that always 
is an easy way to drive conversation because, you know, after you see a show, of course, you know, you look on like the magazine rack and, oh, you know, CBS Soaps and, oh, is Nikki Newman, you know, going to be going out with Jack? And, you know, it's just, that's sad that I even know these characters. But... <laughs> I was gonna you say, watch, wait, you probably this... watched Luke and Laura's wedding, right? <laughs> no, see, no, I no. First off, I didn't, I didn't touch General Hospital. All right, I was a CBS soaps. All right, Younger and Restless and Bold and Beautiful are where, is where it's at. Because you needed two things: you needed Victor Newman being a jackass, and you need to see Stephanie, you know, beat the crap out of Brooke on Bold and Beautiful. I have no idea who any of these people Me are. I know too much is about that bad? CBS soaps, and I apologize. That was my upbringing. Love you, Graham. <laughs> That's a whole other podcast because. My God, it's wonderful, but <laughs> but I just do you know who loves soap operas? Who who you should try and get on the podcast just to talk soap operas? Oh. Susan Eisenberg loves soap operas. Phil Jimenez too. He loves soap operas too. Soap operas are the best because that was that bridge. And I'm so sorry, I'm like completely derailing. You know your train of thought. It's though, totally but. fine. I didn't watch soap operas except maybe Another World. The year that I graduated, I took a year off to like not do anything, and Another World was the one I got into. And when you know Hesh got into like Twins, and I don't know what was going on with. <laughs> I remember watching a bit of Days of Our Lives. I think to my grandmother and I, and I mean my grandmother is the best in general, but. You know, I mean, there's a generational thing there. But that was that thing that we'd sit down and we'd be able to discuss because really, when I looked at it, even as a kid, I'm like, these are comic books. A lot of those story beats, again, characters dying and reappearing. Coming back as twins or... Right. (laughs) Or these really kind of contrived romances that you sort of end up pining for where, you know, it's like, oh yeah, Victor and Nikki, you know, they're destined to be. But I'm like, no, he's, he's a scumbag. She needs to just get the hell out of there, and his kids are spoiled brats. <laughs> you know, because it's like I look at them and I think about like the summers, where it's like their kids are spoiled brats. <laughs> at least Cyclops is, but that's neither here nor there. But we were able to have these talks about these characters, because then when I would tell her about like stuff in like let's say X Men, she was able to understand because it's like okay, that's kind of like this such, such episode, this such such episode, or so it was like this really cool the, the amnesia connection. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Or you find out that your parents are really hanging out with space aliens. <laughs> Which is go. something that didn't happen Star enough Gamers. on soap operas. Well, there was a one soap opera with vampires. So that oh, was that was, was it Passions? I think so. Oh, Fallon used to well, watch. Well, there was two different Passions. It was like Passions and Passions something else. Oh, that's right. They had like a... The spinoff, I think, was the vampires. Okay. Um, I don't know if it's any, like able to be viewed anywhere. Uh, Erica, anybody else listening? Passions, I think it was on NBC. Mm-hmm. The most batshit insane soap opera, because they took all the soap opera stuff and just decided, screw it. We're not even going to bother making sense. We're going to put magic. We're going to put, you know, all these kind of supernatural aspects in this show about ridiculous relationships because they just did not care. So they made it Nickelodeon. So it was the CW show. Yeah. Wasn't that like Wizards of Waverly yeah, Place? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But that's what we need. We need a daytime soap done in the style of a daytime soap, but just make it like legit sci-fi as opposed to just making dramatic sci-fi that has soap opera beats. <gasps> oh, no. They should have taken the, 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 what's that movie that we keep making fun of that they did a horrible job with? The uh, the one with the chick with the hair that they were royalty that's like X-Men but not X-Men. Oh, Inhumans. Inhumans, yeah. Take the Inhumans but make it a soap opera. Well, they kind of did that and it failed miserably. Ugh. <laughs> Don't get me started. No, they're like Adam's family or something. I kind of for like no, no, that was dark. That was bad when you like force yourself to watch something bad because you kind of feel like you have to. No, see the thing is, I when I saw like the previews for it, and I think I watched maybe like the first episode, 
I think it was like streaming someplace. I think it was maybe even on like the ABC website. I pretty much just noped myself out of that whole thing. And I give Marvel a lot of credit, but it just wasn't happening for me. You know, I watched all of them and it had potential. It really did. And then, yeah. Because Black Bolt and Medusa have one of my favorite relationships in comics. Because unlike a lot of them, I think theirs felt real. And yes, they may be royalty, and yes, they may not necessarily have the same social ails that, you know, plague mutants in general. But, you know, you have a guy who, even if he whispers, can destroy cities. And you have this woman who, while is, you know, the queen of her people, is so very caring, but at the same time, you know, is not to be screwed with. You know, she just commands that presence. So having the two of them... Like, their interactions are probably some of, like, my favorites because they really see each other. And they really do care for each other. So, I know it was during, was it Secret Wars? You know, it was kind of horrific. But I think the rest, uh, outside of those two characters, well, and Lockjaw, because Lockjaw is freaking adorable. Yeah, but you know what? I want to see what Lockjaw looked like before he became the dog. Right. Because remember, Lockjaw was, was actually a humanoid figure. Mm-hmm. So I I kind of wanted to see that, you know, as opposed to just going straight to, like, the cute puppy. But, you know, look, I don't know if this is true or not, but if you look at the back of Crystal's head, does it not look like a minion? Why did you do that? <laughs> Why did you do that, Erica? I'm you not going to unsee it. that. You can't unsee it. <laughs> Oh, my. Cannot unsee it, which is why, understand now why they scrapped the Inhumans movie that they were going to do. But I really do hope that maybe what they'll do is take some of the more grounded Inhumans characters into the fold. Because I know there was talk about Kamala Khan, which I think that would be a great way to usher that in. The suspension of disbelief. That's the one thing that I found with a lot of the TV shows. A lot of it comes down to budget. But, you know, how how a TV show obviously doesn't have the same budget as a film. But, you know, the, sus- the suspension of disbelief that they're asking the audience to, to make can be kind of weird. Like, I know when Marvel did the whole thing with the man on the wall and, you know, how Bucky became the man on the wall, but originally it was Nick Fury. And I'm like, okay, well, if Nick Fury was the man on the wall, then he did a real garbage job because <laughs> Galactus, Secret Invasion... Mm-hmm. You know, like, if the man on the wall's whole job is to stop intergalactic threats, then you are doing the worst job ever. (laughs) Which is pretty much like the entire tagline of Original Sin. Yeah, exactly. So you turn around and you have Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which I'm still watching. I don't know why. Probably because AJ puts it on. (laughs) And I'm just like, well, I want to spend some time with my husband. I guess I'm just going to sit on the floor of, you know, our apartment and play cards until Simon comes and sits on all my cards on the floor. Sounds about right. That's how I feel like when, like, I'm watching Power Rangers and Eileen's just like, well, it's on. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I just sort of watch it because it's on. But it's like... Okay, so we're watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and it's like, oh, wow, look at all this crazy stuff going on. Where are the Avengers? <laughs> Wouldn't the Avengers be taking care of a giant ship that uh, Graviton is now involved? And, you know, people, we need to really not put actual human beings in clothing that tight. But it's Graviton, who was like one of the big bads for like Avengers West Coast back in like the 80s and early 90s. Like, why is it a TV show at all? 
I don't even know, but all I know is that what's his face, Adrian Passar or Passer, however you pronounce his last name, is walking around like King Jareth. All right. <laughs> Same thing with Monel on on Supergirl, walking around like King Jareth, the Goblin King. We don't need that. It works with David Bowie because it was David Bowie. Well, yeah, but come on. <laughs> And it was the 80s. But come on. Well, the Superman on Supergirl, I mean, I don't mind him having some tightness because mm, I'm just saying, that booty. <laughs> well, I, okay, I do have to say one thing. I do have to say one thing. When they announced that they were putting Superman on Supergirl, I got really upset. And I'll tell you why. Because it turned, I knew this was going to happen. It was turning into the Superman yeah. show. That was the whole purpose of it being Supergirl. Exactly. They didn't trust the story, the character enough to be able to carry the show. Yeah. And that was really frustrating. And I love Marsha Manhunter. I would love to see an arc where they bring in Malafa'ak. I would love to see, I mean, they already brought in Magan and did the whole white Martian thing, which, you know, was very much like Young Justice. But I would love to see them bring Malafa'ak in. I would love to see them do a whole thing with Marsha Manhunter. I think that he's completely unused once they made the reveal of who he was somehow it's like all right I, it just led up to this and now we're not going to do anything i'm like what, what the hell now they've explored him emotionally more with his father and everything which is great because carl lumbly voiced um voiced martian manhunter for the justice league and justice league unlimited and i understand the emotional arc that they're taking with him which is good and dealing with this whole idea of like his father losing his memory and his father being this like revered great man who's now losing his memory at the same time what kills me is that martian manhunter if you're talking about just power levels he is pretty high up there with soups and with supergirl so to have two of these like super powered ultra powered characters on the same show one is going to take a huge back seat. And the fact that they make him be the one to take a huge back seat, it, it, it almost seems as if it would have been better if he wasn't even on the show. Right. Like that's such a disservice that I kind of feel like they're doing, but I'm not writing the show. So <laughs> though I, I realize I missed my calling. It's like, okay, we can get you on Supergirl and I'll start like writing daytime. So <laughs> um, I would totally do that. I would, I, I would write Supergirl in a heartbeat. <laughs> you know what it is? It's funny, I was talking to somebody about, um, I don't know if it's all the other seasons, but that first season of True Detective, it was the same writer throughout the whole, I think it was eight or nine episodes. And it felt really coherent, because one thing about television is that you've got like a writer's room. Right. So everybody's throwing their ideas together, and sometimes that can work really, really well if ideas flow back and forth really well. Other times, it's a lot of egos punching each other. And, you know, you sometimes get these very, like, patchworky kind of things. Sometimes these, some, some of these episodes, whether it's Flash or Supergirl or S.H.I.E.L.D. or whatever, a lot of these episodes feel like they're made by committee. You know, it's, you know, just basically 40 minutes of, you know, three-minute vignettes that don't always coalesce, that don't always sort of combine properly and i think that's kind of a, a downfall to some of these shows and i mean like i said i'm not in the writer's room and so it's really easy for me to criticize from outside and i probably shouldn't be professionally cr criticizing other professionals <laughs> but you know everybody's allowed to have their opinion right. as we've learned in, on the internet <laughs> uh 
but basically I, I do kind of feel like that. Like it's, it's very patchworky, you know, kind of, you know, thrown together as opposed to there being like this real coherent sort of smooth storyline. Erica, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing another piece of amazing work. Tell our listeners where we can find you, where we can find the book, social media and all that. And Dave as well. Okay. Well, Dave is on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Dave Draws Good. Uh, I am on Twitter at Erica Schultz 42. And if you just like photos of cats sniffing shoes, you can follow me on Instagram at Erica Schultz Writes. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Erica, again, thank you so much. And it's always a pleasure talking with you. And hopefully we'll get to do so again soon. Thank you so, so much for having me, guys. You guys are the best. <laughs> the lovely Aileen who's sitting next to me, you will hear her voice at the end for all of our social information. But that'll do it for this episode of Adrian Has Issues. I'm Adrian. I'm Aileen. And then we'll see you next issue. Thank you for listening to Adrian Has Issues. Please visit us on the web at adrianhasissues.com where you can stream and download all of our other great episodes. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash adrianhasissues. Follow us on Twitter at adrianhasissues and on Instagram at adrianhasissuespod. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and the Laughable Podcast app. Thanks again!